And some people say you're betting on the horse, which is the product. Oftentimes, I feel like you're betting on the jockey and the horse race, right? Which is the market. And if you get somebody and you have a really, you know, charismatic, hardworking go-getter founder, that person is usually also capable of getting other things done and you will not understand how. Hello, I'm Daniel Weinman, and this is Beyond Technical, the non-technical founders podcast. You see, in order to bring my startups to life, I had to go from non-technical to CTO. I failed again and again and again until I finally succeeded a few times. Now I think it's time to share some of these experiences with you, together with a bunch of amazing guests I met along the way. In today's episode, we have David Water, a startup founder and angel investor. He created Twistage, which was like YouTube even before YouTube was a thing. Later on, he came to found Vendorful, a company that provides a SaaS product for e-sourcing and vendor management. We hope you have a great time listening. Let's go beyond technical. David, welcome to Beyond Technical. We're pleased to have you. The The thing that I like the most about your story and your background is the variety of things you did on your life, including being a personal trainer, a founder, yeah. and a bunch of other stuff. So why don't we start by you telling us about what were the, the professions you had in your life? Oh, boy. Uh, it's interesting. I um, Just last weekend, I... I went with my family to this uh, fair around mineralogy. So all different sorts of rocks and minerals. And there was one booth at this fair that had nothing to do with that. And uh, it was cutlery, knives. Mm -hmm. And I had worked for that company when I was 19 selling knives. (laughs) And it was a a formative experience for me. It's really when I learned that, you know, I I could sell. So, you know, from that time on, uh, I've done a lot of different stuff. Um, I've been, you know, paid to write. I've had a literary agent, obviously did not continue to pursue that. Uh, I've had some terrible jobs. I I worked at this magazine company where, you know, I was fetching coffee for people and Mm -hmm. picking up their dry cleaning. I was 29 when I was doing that. So I was like moving backwards professionally. You know, Um, I worked as a software engineer. I worked as a uh, a product manager. I worked as a recruiter, a headhunter. I I worked as a personal trainer, although you can't tell now, but that's, that's, you know, what two kids will do to you. Uh, And two kids in COVID. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I've, I've done, a, you know, just a, a ton of different stuff. One of the, one of the things I like about having my own startup is I, I get to continue to do a ton of different stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there are some people who are blessed with having a very narrow, uh, set of interests. Um, I, I'm not blessed that way. I get bored. So I, I like being able to do, you know, this, then this, then this, and then that, and, uh, and constantly move around and, you know, doing a startup, you don't have a choice but to uh, but to do that. Yeah, like multiple multiple hats that yes. you need to to wear. I love this man. Uh, I myself feel uh, very identified with your journey because I've I've done a bunch of things in my um, career in, in software uh, 
engineering was one of the things I did a lot, but almost like always trying to do different things and coming back to it more than being blessed, just like I said, by, by having one thing I love to do. I, I, I love to do multiple things. And currently, you're the founder of your second startup, right? Yes. Yep. Vendorful. It's called Vendorful. Yep. Yeah. And you provide software as a service for people who work with procurement. Yeah, like primarily RFP, procurement. this kind of thing. Yep. So RFP, supply management, um, supply performance, uh, so all that kind of stuff. But yeah, generally, we're, we're selling to the uh, procurement persona, mm-hmm. as they say in sales. Mm-hmm. This is your second venture. The first one was Twisted, right? Yes. And it was a, an online video platform. Yes, you've done your homework. We, yeah, the 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 team did the homework, and yes. I and I and I read it. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell we should tell everybody there was no pre-interview. This was all orchestrated over email. You didn't even ask me. You know, I I didn't get a questionnaire. Sometimes I get asked to do these podcasts. I get you know asked to fill out a, mm-hmm. nothing. So this is all fresh. I'm I'm impressed so far. Awesome man, awesome. And uh, what led you to starting first uh, Twistage? Uh, what what was was the spark? Sure. So you know, I I mentioned that I was you know getting uh, dry cleaning and and, and uh, getting coffee for people. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, I I was not making progress in my career. Um, I, it wasn't a, a, a linear path for me, and I don't think it's a linear path for everybody. I think the idea that you know you graduate from college and then you know you kind of work work up a corporate ladder, that, that's that's fine for some people, but not everybody. And I just, you know, I was just doing because I didn't know what else to do. And and, for, and also because I, I didn't have an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I developed an idea and the pull of the idea, combined with the push, the you know, utter dissatisfaction I had, you know, professionally, I said, let me go ahead and do this. Now, I had worked at some other companies uh, where they, you know, maybe treated me better or whatever, but you know, I saw decisions being made that I didn't agree with, and you know, a couple of the companies I, I worked for, you know, went out of business. And I really like the idea of being accountable to myself yeah. if yeah. I fail, and and the, and the beauty of that is when you can own that responsibility, you have agency to fix it. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, if you're in somebody else's business and they're making terrible choices, you can say, oh, no, 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 let's not do that. And then the company implodes. Like, you can't do anything. So I wanted to stop it before it imploded. Uh, fortunately, it didn't implode. I made tons of mistakes. I did a lot of things really stupidly. But, um, you know, ultimately, it, it ended up, uh, you know, being a good outcome for everybody. That's awesome. Yeah, in my experience with entrepreneurs, the need to control your own destiny or at least influence it more yeah. heavily <laughs> is is very important right I'll, I'll tell you there's one other thing that I think it's very important um, you will spend more time you know at your job than you will with your family yeah. now maybe that's less true today post covid and you know the work yeah. from home model you know I think it's in some respects it's going to be here to stay you know certainly for some businesses and industries but back then you know I was going to an office every day and I'd spend a lot of time there. And while I was doing that startup, I got married and I had two children. If I'm going to choose to spend that much time away from my family, I really want to like the people I work with. And so when it's your business, you choose the people with whom you work. Yeah. And that is also, it's you know, 
create your culture, you create your environment. And so that also, I think, is very important for entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's an amazing way to give more meaning to your life and more satisfaction without, I don't know, compromising on your ambitions. Like you, you yep. can you can achieve your ambitions with people you like. So this, yep. this is amazing. I think you're frankly, you're, you're more likely to. Um, we have somebody on our team who told me one of the best things I've ever heard. He goes, everybody here is my favorite person to work with. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> I was like, that is just such a nice thing to hear. Um, but you want to, you want to do well, not just for yourself, but for them. And they want to do well, you know, for you. And that's, I think, I think, you know, when everybody is, is, you know, rowing in the same direction for that reason, because they're really internally motivated, um, emotionally, right. To, to support their, their colleagues, uh, it, it's, you know, you're more likely to end up successful. This is not easy. Starting a business is horrible, horrible. I, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. If, if you know, you're listening to this and you are happy to like a regular job, do that, right? Because this is, I wake up every day and I've already been successful. And I, I don't like, you know, I, I don't have to worry about how am I going to pay for my kids to go to college? Like, I'm okay. And I still wake up every day thinking like, oh God, I feel like I want to throw up from the anxiety. So when you are working with people you really enjoy, that is that that makes a lot of it much easier yeah uh, just tonight i woke up at 2 30 in the morning i don't know why but i woke up and the thoughts around what needed to be done on, on my business prevented me from from falling back to sleep until like 5 30 <laughs> so it's kind of yeah it's uh this is like it, it is some sort of insanity um to do this and yeah i have friends who've been this in in, in this you know, startup mode longer than I have. And all of us, it seems like we try to leave it and we come back. You know, after yeah. my last company was acquired, I told my wife, like, this is great. I have all these resources. I have so much support. I make a lot of money. Um, like, I, you know, I have a ton of autonomy. And she's like, oh, I give you six months. After six months, <laughs> like, oh my God, everything's so slow here. We can't make a decision to save our lives. Why are we making, why are we doing this and not that? So, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not wired to be anything other than like full of anxiety, I think. Yeah. And, and, and being an entrepreneur is usually less of a decision than something you make peace with over time. Like. Yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, yeah. There, there should be a special therapist for entrepreneurs who tells them that, like, look, it's just it is what it is. You can't fight it. Just, just, just come to accept it. Yeah. And so you ended up selling Twisted, and how many years between deciding to you're gonna start the first day you worked on it and mm -hmm. the time you sold it? It's hard to hard to quantify. It's because I think I it was more toe in the water. Like you know, mm -hmm. I didn't commit. To working on it. I mean, I think that from the time we started playing around with the idea to even incorporating it as a business, it was probably like 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's probably, you know, depending on how you want to measure it, it's probably seven to nine years, right? So we yeah, but split the middle and call it eight years. And early on, and for those of you who, who have internet access, you can go to archive.org, the internet archive, and look up Vlogville, V-L-O-G-V-I-L-L-E dot com. And that was a lot like YouTube, but, you know, we hadn't heard of YouTube. Uh, I don't know that YouTube existed uh, when we started that. Um, I'd have to actually look at their internet archive. But, you know, 
there was a lot of small things going on with online video at the time. And um, I know we were way out ahead of them when we finally found out about them in terms of like features and functionality. Uh, a guy called me. He's now a very prominent VC on the West Coast. He said, hey, have you seen the site YouTube? So I typed the letter U, the word tube. I'm like, there's nothing. He's like, no, no, Y-O-U. So I looked and I was like, oh, no, this site is just laden with pirated content. We have all this anti-piracy stuff. You know, these guys are going to get in such trouble. Well, uh, a, a video called Lazy Sunday, which was a Saturday Night Live skit, ended up going viral on YouTube. It could never have gone viral on our platform because yeah. it would have been taken down automatically <coughs> by our by our system. Uh, but you know, in social media, virality wins. We got in our own in our own way, right? Example of a mistake I made. Like we're not going to get sued, and uh, basically. Within like uh, I don't know, two months after that, we said, "Guess what? We're a B two B company." Mm-hmm. So we uh, we took all the the technology and started uh, being YouTube for businesses. So it was uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a good time. Yeah, it it sounds like it like on the frontier of video over the internet. So it's an amazing experience, definitely. Yeah, I was I was. Uh, I like writing our transcoder. I, we wrote a Windows Media. I wrote a Windows Media transcoder, uh, and things were happening so quickly that by the time like we were ready to put it into deployment, because we were also going to figure out uh, how to run it, uh, either run it on Linux using something like Wine, which yeah. was not working, or we were going to have to get and and this is before EC2. We were actually EC2 beta customers, wow. AWS beta customers. Uh, there were like no documentation. Like we wrote all of our own stuff for provisioning and, and everything else with their APIs. Um, yeah, by the time I, I basically had that ready to go, we had already made the decision that we were not, not going to use Windows Media. We we're going to use Flash. <laughs> so uh, I had to do a different transcoder instead. But um, yeah, it was very, it, it was, there's a lot going on. Prices were crazy. Um, you know, I remember uh, we had a customer wanted us to move to their content delivery network. They were charging a dollar uh, per gigabyte of data moved. Uh, I think that that price today is probably, you know, around a penny, yeah. two pennies. It's a hundred X, you know, 50 to hundred X decline. So it's, uh, it was really it's very early and, um, you know, going first is, is not always the, the, the best yeah. move. Not as you want to let somebody else carve the way and you can, you know, go into their groove and save a lot of time. But it was you. You were acquired. Was it great acquisition? Were you thrilled after after selling the company? And what what was the 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 motivation for selling and the story behind it? So the the motivation for selling was we we were uh, a bit dysfunctional, sort of in terms of our, our board composition, and uh, the company was actually wildly profitable, mm-hmm. and. Um, we didn't think that made sense. We wanted to invest heavily in growth, uh, but it took two and a half years for us to raise dollar one. And we had some wonderful investors and we had some less wonderful investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the less wonderful investors who who were able to kind of authorize, uh, I, I, I did not agree to the world's best term sheet. And and I went in eyes open. Our, our attorney said, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being 100% favorable for the investor, one being 100% favorable for the uh, for the company. He said, this is a nine. Mm. I think we can get it to a seven. <laughs> Got it. We're not going to get it to a five. <clears throat> and it had been two and a half years. I said, we, we, have to, we have to move forward to give up. 
So we'll take the money and whatever comes with it. So, you know, there was discussion about like paying a dividend, et cetera. And I was like, we're, we're in such a good position right now. We don't even need, you know, outside investment because we're printing money here uh, and operating at 89 and a half percent gross margin. Like, let's, let's go. And um, we couldn't find anything that made uh, everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we thought a sale would make the, the most sense. In terms of the sale, I, it was exhausting. Um, <laughs> I, I, we did the whole diligence in 30 days with, with a public company. Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't talk at the end. Like, I was just a mess. And my, um, one of my partners called me up and he's, he's like, uh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm at the office. I'm signing. I'm still signing papers. I'm still going through documentation. He goes, have you logged into your bank account? I said, no, you know, I, I'll do it later. He goes, log in. And he said, do you see the, do you see it? Is it in there? I'm like, it's in there. And he's like, isn't that amazing? I said, I can't even process this right now. Like, <laughs> I'm so tired. Uh, I did print it up and I gave it to my wife when I got home. Uh, and I said, I'll, I'll think about this later. It took me probably like two weeks for the hangover to, to go by for me to realize, oh my God. But yeah, my, my, this other guy, he was he was at the bank trying to take out an ungodly amount of cash to go next door and buy a watch, a very expensive watch in <laughs> cash. But they uh, they would not let him take out more than a thousand dollars. So he called me up and said, "I can't do that. Probably for the best." Yeah, and in a sense, I feel from from your answer that you you personally didn't want to sell. But in a sense, you being this very versatile person, you probably ended up after the sale being able to do more cool things. Is that yeah, too far off I, for I your trajectory? Yeah, I didn't like that I felt like I didn't have a choice whether or not, like selling, it became clear that selling was the only thing everybody was okay with, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the other choice is like, one was grow and one was stay at this size basically and then pay out, pay out a dividend. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wasn't interested in building a lifestyle business. Like lifestyle businesses are great. Um, I think they have a terrible, you know, reputation, but you know, everyone, yeah. They're not necessarily great as an investor, um, but if that's what you want, like, and you can do it, that's great. But I, you know, I wasn't making an awesome salary because that wasn't dictated by me. I, you know, I, I, I could have made a great salary. We still would have been profitable, but I still wouldn't want to wouldn't have wanted to do it because I wanted to build something that was going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, friends with the guys at uh, Wistia. And uh, they they originally, like, so I, my prime, like, I had two business partners. Like, the, w- one of them uh, went to college with me. So we both went to Brown. Our application was built in Ruby on Rails and it was mm-hmm. an online video startup. The founders of Wistia both went to Brown. Uh, it's a Ruby on Rails application and it's online video. So they heard me on a podcast and uh, emailed me and I took one of them out to dinner. My, my wife's like, what are you crazy? You're taking out a competitor. I'm like, oh, we can all be friends. It's fine. Those guys, they've really, um, they've had the chance to, to build this amazing business. They bought out their outside investors. Uh, they have a hundred some odd people. Um, they love going to work every day. And I just wanted different things than, the, than, than our investors did. And, I, and I, like our team wanted different things uh, than our investors did. So the, uh, so we ended up there. Uh, the, the big win, two big wins for me uh, in, terms, in terms of how that played out. Um, one, uh, overnight, I went from some idiot doing a startup to, you know, this esteemed successful entrepreneur mm-hmm. with an exit. Mm-hmm. So the perception, like the world's perception of me had changed. 
I didn't know anything more the day after the sale was announced than the day yeah. before, but people just perceived me differently um, and not in a bad way. And the other thing is uh, I had I had an extremely difficult time raising money. As I mentioned, it took me two and a half years to raise dollar one. My parents didn't want to invest until somebody else mm-hmm. invested. And, uh, you know, I, I've been able to invest in a bunch of startups uh, and really, you know, support the entrepreneurs. And some of these have gone, you know, quite well for me financially as well. And so had I had I held on, you know, to the business, you know, for four or five years longer, I, I might have missed these opportunities to put money into, you know, seed investments. Yeah. And uh, that's actually a great segue because you, apart from being uh, the founder of Vendorful, you're an angel investor with multiple investments, right? Mm-hmm. What what made you want to want to invest? Is like um, the financial uh, incentive, the being close to other entrepreneurs. What 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 was the trigger there? All of it. So I, I actually just got off the the immediate. Zoom I was on right before this one was with um, a company where I'm an investor. And it's the only one where I said, I really don't care about the money. I, I, I care about the mission. Um, and I think there's, they're doing a lot of social good. And I told her maybe two years ago, if you decide to turn this whole thing into a not-for-profit, I am 100% okay with that, right? You don't have to worry about my money. It just turns into a charitable donation. That's fine. I'm good. You know, you have to do what you want to do and you have to, you know, all the other investors, but you won't hear anything from me. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, there is, uh, I get joy out of like the whole creative process and, and to be part of it, you know, even if it's a bit more at arm's length with most of these investments, I have some involvement. Uh, that might mean that they want to talk to me and bounce ideas off me. It might mean they want introductions, uh, you know, it might mean that, you know, I get on the call with a potential investor in some cases and try to help them pitch the business and the number of investors. Um, but I get to vicariously uh, experience, yeah. you know, some, <laughs> some additional stuff. Now, not everything is a rocket ship, but, you know, a few of them have been, which has been great. Um, and then lastly, probably more than half the investments are other entrepreneurs who I got to know when I was doing Twistage. And we kind of came up together at the same time. Yeah. And I put money into theirs. They put money into mine. And we support each other and we help each other out. And it is, it's nice that your investments succeed. It's even nicer when you're friends with the person who is mm-hmm. succeeding. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, these, the relationships we've had, um, people say, you know, keep your, your money and your relationships separate. I, if you're the right kind of relationship, you don't need to. And, um, some of them have been great and some of them, you know, I'm never going to see my money back. And, and I'm okay with that because I, I've, you know, what, what I care about is, is, you know, high integrity, hard work, everything else. A lot of this, uh, the outcomes are, are tied to luck and circumstance. And what do you look for when, when you're deciding to invest in a company? I, I look for an unfair advantage. So an unfair advantage to me means that I have some information that is not going to be available to you know most other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, an unfair advantage could mean that I, I have I have a relationship with a person for ten years, and I know who this person is, and I know how they operate and everything else. Uh, for I, I have a friend who has uh, a unicorn, and uh, you know 
VCs have uh, reached out to me <laughs> to try to, you know, mm-hmm. oh, how can I get connected to him, et cetera. Um, but I had that unfair advantage. I, I knew before they knew that, you know, yeah. he was super capable. Um, I, an unfair advantage could be uh, that I have, you know, domain expertise. An mm-hmm. unfair advantage could mean that I have a lot of relationships uh, where I can, you know, make introductions and be, and be a, a, you know, a multi force multiplier for that, for that business. That's generally what it is there. Again, there's, there's the one exception where when I looked at one business, I said, Oh my God, this is so good for society. Um, like I'll do that. And then there's one other one where, uh, I, I, the CEO was just, you know, he, he won me over like one day at a time, but, uh, and I don't have an unfair advantage there. Uh, maybe I did. I, I, I had a level of access that maybe some of the other people, uh, on the cap table didn't have for a while. Yeah, that's that's probably yeah. it. I, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, and I would say it's very hard for me, like if it's a good friend of mine and he said, uh, or she said, oh, I'm building a social network for cat photos, I, I, I might invest because I know that friend is a really good entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I get somebody like random contacting me, uh, I get a lot of people contact me about, I got somebody contact me recently at NFTs. Yes. I, I I don't have any experience in NFTs, so while it's maybe conceptually interesting, I I don't even know what questions to ask to evaluate whether it's an investable opportunity. And so, if I have zero domain experience, zero knowledge of the entrepreneur, I have no idea how it benefits society. Like it's probably not investable for me. Perfect. As you know, this podcast has the intention of contributing to the the journey of non-technical founders of startups. What do non-technical founders need to have for you to be interested in investing in in their startups? Uh, probably a technical partner. So, yeah. uh, you know, I am a technical founder. Where it's probably more accurate to say I was a technical founder. So when I did Twistage, I was I was involved in writing code. Uh, of the three of us, I was the worst developer. But I was a productive developer. Uh, with Venderful, uh, my partner and I made a decision very early on that I would not write code. Mm-hmm. Um, that it would ultimately be a, a drag on my, you know, productivity elsewhere. Uh, if you're building a non-technical business, I don't care if you're technical. If you're building a business, I had somebody reach out to me uh, a few months ago, and she was great, super dynamic. Uh, had an idea that she liked. I was a little less bullish on the idea, but I really liked her. And and she was, you know, trying to raise money. And I said, okay, so what do you have to show me? She's like, I, I put together these wireframes. <laughs> and I said, okay, what what about do you have a, you know, got anything working? She's like, no. And I said, oh, okay, what are you gonna do with the money? She's like, I'm gonna hire some, you know, technical yeah. uh, firm to, to go out and build this for me. I said, oh, are you hiring employees? Said, no, I, I can't afford them. I'm going to outsource it. And I said, well, if you're going to outsource it, like, A, you know, the odds that it gets finished on time and on budget, are, that's probably a coin flip. I said, and then once, if you get funded, you're probably going to have to throw it all away and start again because you're going to hire at that point. You'll have money to hire a technical person. That person would say, I don't like the way this thing was built. Yeah, more likely than not. So I said, I don't, I don't know in your particular business if you are investable unless you have a technical co-founder. What I really like to explore, you know, when I press on uh, a few things, what if she had sales? 
she managed to to sell something to someone uh, and did it did like a concierge MVP or something like that. Yep. Would that change your perspective? Yeah, it it probably would. Um, you, it says something to me about that founder. If that founder is able able to sell basically vaporware, um, mm -hmm. I, I have sold vaporware, yeah, and then had to deliver on the vaporware. Uh, you yeah. know, in the past, um, I, I've done it. I will. I'm sure I will do it again. Um, but if you're able to do that you're going to have to end up building something anyway. Yeah. And if you haven't planned, so that's the thing. If she said, I don't have a technical co-founder. I, I got somebody to buy this idea. They signed a contract. They, they, I have, you know, I had six months to build it. I have an MVP. I built that with this, this outsourcer. Now what I want to do, because I validated this, I want to throw it away and, and build the whole thing myself. That to me is a more backable story mm -hmm. than the one I got, which is I haven't convinced anybody to pay me for this. I'm going to go, I'm going to spend a bunch of money to have somebody people build, build some, have some people build the thing that I think that I can sell. And then, you know, she sells it, it probably gets thrown away. And maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, but she can't sell it. You know, she, she probably raised money too soon. Uh, the, the other, the other thing I can say is again, it depends on what, what it is you're doing, but much of like uh, many, many good businesses are not like novel computer science. Yes. You know, there are lots and lots of CRMs. Uh, many of these CRM systems that get sold, basically the, the sales pitch is Salesforce is way too complicated. We can do a much simpler CRM. And it's, it's you know, basically a relational database on the, on the back end and a pretty clean UI. Yeah. And many non-technical people, if they were just to start going through some tutorials, you know, Ruby on Rails or PHP or Django or whatever, um, could probably build a, a, a demoable product. They just commit themselves to it for a year. Yeah, that that was my my story. I had worked with development when, in my mid-teens. And then when the web came, I... I I I didn't do much, uh, didn't know how how web development worked. But one day I wanted to to start crowdfunding platform like Kickstarter here in Brazil, mm -hmm. and I couldn't find a technical founder. And I learned how to do it in Ruby on Rails. Yep. What I've been impressed by over the years is that there are many people who just won't take this path and still they make things happen and this is this is very interesting to to me like for for example they can create a structure where they sell vaporware or or they sell service that will eventually be scaled through technology for for example and after i started talking to investors who really wanted to invest in great entrepreneurs what i discovered is that most of them would invest in good businesses, good entrepreneurs that will figure sure. figure out tech tech later, as long as they are doing real businesses. Yep. So I, you know, you're 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 betting on the jockey, right? And uh, just the you know the entrepreneur. And some people say you're betting on the horse, which is the product. Uh, oftentimes, I, I feel like you're betting on the jockey and the horse race, right? Which is the market. Yes. Yes. And if you get somebody and you have a really, you know, charismatic, hardworking go-getter founder, that person can sell vaporware. Um, that person is usually also capable of of getting 
getting other things done and you will not understand how. Exactly. So <laughs> I have no technical team, blah, blah. But I had this friend who has a friend and I, I had her build me just like over the course of the weekend thing. I just took her out to dinner and now I had this prototype and I used that prototype and I put it in front of this company and they said, oh, if it had these three features. So um, I had another friend, I hadn't bothered him. So I, I, he built those three features. Yeah. Then they started paying me money. <laughs> Now, this thing that I have, it, it, it runs off the computer in my living room. So I'm going to have to throw it away, and I know it. But I'm making you know $1,000 a month with this first customer. Like There's something very impressive about somebody who, who can do that. Yeah. Right? And so then that's when you say you're, you're betting on the jockey. Uh, yeah. And if you like the market, you're betting on the horse race. The horse, the product, fungible. Yeah, yeah. The horse, uh, of course, the horse is important, it, it, even in the metaphor, right? You, you yeah. need the horse, but it's uh, when you have a great jockey and a great race, uh, you you can. But the, bet. The, but the horse is. But I say, I say it's fungible, right? If you have that jockey, and the horse gets injured, you get another horse. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, it it is. It's hard, and, the, and the, you know, I don't want to extend the metaphor too far, <laughs> but in the metaphor, it's much. If you're running the wrong race, right? You're in the wrong market. <clears throat> that's a problem, and um, that will, you know, typically require more than a a, a product pivot. Mm -hmm. uh, a market pivot can be much harder to pull off. And if you have the wrong entrepreneur, even if they're in a great market and they have a good product, that's also going to be tough. The the product, frankly, is probably the easiest thing to change, and that's yeah. why when we talk about we talk about pivots, um, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about people are redoing the product. If you if you are going to change the the market. You nece almost necessarily yeah. have to change your product, but but many of the pivots, you know, leverage the domain expertise that the entrepreneur has developed in a specific market. They say we thought that the enterprise was really the interesting part of the market. It's actually the SMB. Mm -hmm. Our product was built for the enterprise. We're going to have to redo it for the SMB. <laughs> so the the race is the same, right? They're still in the same market, still the same person. Change the horse. Yeah, and what you described, uh, the the hypothetical founder uh, you described is what we like to call like an unstoppable founder. Re doesn't matter if if they're technical, they're non-technical, they're resilient and uh, resourceful enough to make things happen. Yep. Uh, one one of the nicest things, uh, one of our investors in the last business, a guy named Jerry Colonna. And Jerry uh, is now a, an executive coach, but um, he was a VC at um, uh, now Flatiron Partners uh, in New York in the in the '90s, which Flatiron was the highest returning venture fund. And he he told me, David, you succeeded in this business through sheer force of will. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was like, that's very nice to hear. It also explains why I'm so tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I. I you know, I got laughed at in meetings. I, I, I literally had a VC fall asleep when I was pitching. Um, you know, it, it wasn't easy, um, but I, I, I just, I wasn't going to, I was not going to fail. And the second time around, is it easier than the first one? Easier and harder. So uh, easier to raise money, easier to recruit people. Uh, like half the company used to work for me before. And they're like, oh, mm -hmm. I like you. I'll come back. Mm -hmm. Easier to get meetings, uh, you know, higher level of credibility, um, but harder in that uh, I think my expectations have changed. Yes. Uh, I like 
the the first outcome was life changing for me. But I, I you know I want to do it bigger and better than that one. Uh, you know, so you know. In, in English, we say the goalposts have moved. Right? Yeah, My, the, perfect. The, the target is 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 uh, is further away and smaller. Right, makes it it's just harder to get to what I, I want to get to, um, and that's that's a challenge. I, it's a it's weird. We're we're definitely ahead of the pace I was at Twistage, but here you know I feel like oh it's not fast enough. And at Twistage, we were not doing nearly as well as we are here. And I would think like things are okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like. We went the first like three years and it's zero happening. And we kept we, we kept moving our own goalposts. We get to the end of the year and we haven't figured this out. We're gonna quit. We get to the end of the year and we say, Oh my God, we learned so much. We're so stupid thinking that this would be the time to quit. Now we know what we're doing. Let's give it another year. We give it another year. We'd say, Okay, we thought we knew what we were doing at the end of last year, but we learned even more this year. <laughs> and then you know, we we kept doing that. It's it's risky because you know, you could do that for, for 10 years. <laughs> And never make any progress. There it worked out. Here, um, you know, you save a lot of time uh, by knowing what's not important and uh, things that you know your first startup feel important, and you later find out what what was and wasn't. Um, and that and that's definitely nice. You mentioned the the pleasure of being able to work with people you like, like when you build mm-hmm. a team. How much of your time do you invest in building culture? team engagement and, and all, all, all around team building? Probably surprisingly little. Um, and the reason is uh, we've been distributed from day one and most of the people here already knew each other. And so I, I sort of lucked into having a culture from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And um, we have since, you know, we've since added people who I didn't, who I didn't know. Um, but just sort of through osmosis, you know, they they kind of adopt the right uh, approaches. I, part of, you know, I really like everybody personally. When we we do get together in person, you know, we go out to eat or whatever. It's it's fun. Um, I have a ton of respect for people like intellectually uh, here as just just really smart people. But um, I mean, death by meetings is is, yeah. is you know, it's it's like. Less than COVID, but uh, it's it's yeah. <laughs> there. There's a lot of meetings uh, yep. that that companies have, and I, you know, we got acquired. I had a, a weekly strategy meeting, and I'm like, if we're having a weekly strategy meeting, it should be called the tactics meeting. Yeah, perfect. Because we can't be redoing the strategy every week, and the meetings were kind of it. You had a meeting for the sake of having a meeting. Oh, we're not in the same office. We 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 should get on a call, uh, or now get on a Zoom. So we don't do a lot of that. We actually had zero team meetings uh, until we got to like six people. Then we now we do them once a month. Um, but there's a lot of ad hoc kind of on-demand yeah. interaction. Uh, our de- we're very development heavy. All the developers do pair programming uh, with all the other developers. So there's just constant. And I'm still very involved in products. Sales is involved in products. So it happens. I, I think. We will have to pay more attention you know, when we're 100 people, um, especially if we stay scattered around the globe. Yeah, uh, it gets it gets harder to do. When you when you talk about meetings, I remember you mentioned working with Ruby on Rails uh, in the early days, and mm-hmm. the guys from 37 Signals now Basecamp uh, have have been talking about this for a long time. Were they an influence for? 
for your let's say upbringing in terms of no I, it was it was weird i mean we we sort of like calculus you know was invented in two places at the same roughly the same time mm -hmm. by two different people with no knowledge of each other yeah. and i this isn't unique to us i i think that a lot of people as they moved into um web development and and tooling became available for this sort of naturally fell into well this kind of feels like the right way to do things So after our company was acquired, we got sent to Agile training. Now, we did not have scrums. We did not have stand-ups. We did not read books about it. We developed our own sort of framework and methodology to, to do stuff. So we go to the Agile training, and the guy's like, oh, this is how you do this, 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 this. I'm like, oh, interesting. We do you know, A, B, C, D, just like you do, but our E and F are different. And we explained why and everything else. It's like, where do you guys read about this? Come up with that. We just, it just sort of evolved organically. We didn't discuss it or think about it. It just sort of happened. And I, I think, um, like, I, I'd spent enough time in, in corporate America to know what I did not like mm -hmm. and, and, and to push back against those things. And again, I think probably we were ill-served by not having a, a monthly meeting uh, until we got to five people. And, and that's maybe a reaction like post-acquisition, having so many meetings. But um, yeah, I, yeah, just it, it sort of evolved organically. One last question. A non-technical founder has just decided to start uh, a startup. What would be the first step in your mind? Like, I, I want to start something and they have the idea. Sure. Uh, stop doing that and get a regular job. <laughs> But if, 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 assuming they're committed to it and, uh, and, and yeah, they, 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 they've, come to accept it and come to grips to the fact that this is what they're, they're going to do. And the first step, I think, would be to, to go out and try to, try to validate the idea. And also to be very mindful when you're out there validating the idea. You know, I, I pitched the idea for Vendorful. The first iteration of Vendorful was a free product. And I pitched that to a lot of people. And I was told by all the people, oh, what a, what a great idea. This is so cool. I found out that the word free was the F word in procurement, mm -hmm. right? It was like very off-putting to people. And that meant that we had to change the business model, wanted to change the business model, had to, you know, change the product. And there's our, there's our pivot, right? We, we stayed in the same market. Um, so all the, the knowledge we had acquired, you know, was still useful, which is great. Um, but, you know, going out and getting validation, I think, is important. And also um, understanding... Um, that that validation is different when you're not asking people to use your product or open their wallet or anything else. So I would say that if you have a commercial product, go out and try to sell it. See if somebody will yep. pay you anything for it. Even if it's a, like a commercial letter of intent, if you build this thing for me and it has these features, I will pay for it. And I'm not super concerned about the amount. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of like, if, if you said it's a dollar, you know, maybe, but If it's you're selling it into an enterprise and it's, you know, you're you think in the future you're going to make fifty thousand dollars a year in the subscription, and in year one you're going to make you know five thousand dollars because you know you're not going to have this. That's great. Getting somebody to spend five thousand dollars on a product that you know you, you might have something. See if you can get two people, three people to do it, <clears throat> and then if you can do that, then then you're probably on something. The the worst thing, the saddest thing, is to talk to entrepreneurs, and I, I talk to a lot of them. Um, yeah, you know, I had a guy reach out to me, and he's like, 
I have this, you know, this products I built. It's by built, he built, he got other developers to do it. You know, he has some of the behaviors of the unstoppable entrepreneur that you described, but to, to his detriment, because if you're in the, if you're solving a problem that nobody else has, yeah. you can be really good at, you know, raising money. You could be really good at recruiting people to work, you know, but you'll never be really good at, at making money because nobody needs your product. So he described a problem and, and he characterized this as one of the biggest problems in the world. And I said, I, I don't have that problem and I don't know anybody else who has that problem. And he said, oh, this is, this is the thing that eats at me and keeps me up at night. He'd been working on this thing for like two years or three years and it was an app. And he had like 600 users. His like, uh, you know, daily active users was, was like three or four. And I, I told him like, hey, if it were me, I, I would probably you know, stop and do something else. Um, he'd broken up with his girlfriend. He'd let go of his apartment. He was sleeping on couches. And he was in his early 40s. And it just seems painful. So he said, I, you know, I'm convinced, like, I'm going to show you. I said, all right, let's pick a number. Do you think you can get to 10,000 users by the end of the year? So I can. I said, great. I'm not going to ask you to get to 10,000. I'm going to ask you to get to 1,000. 1,000. You have 600 now. Let's get to 1,000 by the end of the year. You have five months to do it. And uh, I said, if you don't get there, maybe it's time to give up. We can talk at the end of the year. Then I, I, we added like 30 or 40 users. I said, it, it's time. He's like, no, 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 no. You're <laughs> missing a feature. Yeah, the, I said, you're not missing a feature. You're, you're missing a market. Yeah. The difference between unstoppable and inflexible or stubborn it, yes. is a thin line. <laughs> I find it's out. right. And you, and you don't know until hindsight, right? Yep. I mean, we're going to start like, so what we read about in, in the, in the, press where, you know, most of the people who are on these like uh, very high volume podcasts, you know, were successful. Oh yeah, I started a business and, you know, things were, those are the outliers. Yep. They get a disproportionate amount of press. Like the more typical story is like my first startup where I spent two and a half years killing myself uh, to have nobody invest, you know, nobody buy the products, you know, keep iterating, keep iterating, keep iterating. And finally, you know, we get a little bit of commercial traction. Some investment traction follows that. And then the snowball starts to slowly roll down the hill. And that is, that is, you know, more typical. Now, what would have happened if I went two years and I said, you know what? I put two years into this. It's not going to work. It's just, I, I, I give up. If I waited six months more, yeah. I, like I would have had a life changing outcome. But you don't know when you're looking forward. You can only know in retrospect. And so the scariest thing about being an entrepreneur is when you go into this, um, you, you could easily lose a decade of life chasing the wrong thing. You could also <clears throat> abandon ship too early before you really give it a chance to be successful. And you're never going to know. David, thank you so much. Your Both your story and your way of thinking uh, are bring light to us founders and I'm thrilled that, that you accepted to join us today and it was a, an honor to, to talk to you man. Oh, I, I appreciate your having me. Um, you know it's uh, I, I think you know you do good work helping <laughs> helping uh, entrepreneurs accept sort of reality. I, I like things that are grounded uh, and I think this uh, is, this idea that entrepreneurship is sexy. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think we really need to rethink this. It's 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 hard work. It's it's really deeply rewarding and satisfying, but that's because it's hard, not because it's sexy. So thank you for so much for having me. Thank you, man. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, I really, really hope this episode contributed to your journey and you were able to enjoy the conversation. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, and your favorite podcast app. I'm Daniel Weinman, and this was Beyond Technical, the non-technical founders podcast. <laughs>